So there I am. <laughs> Whoa. He's going to complain about the birds. <laughs> the way that life is set up right now, they're out for our, our dollars, they're out for our consciousness, and they don't give a fuck who's dying. I mean, they're putting kids on anti-fucking-psychotics. I still want to drink every fucking night. So how do we stay sober? To a certain degree, it's kind of like cranial sacral massage, right? You're like laying there and somebody gets paid a lot of money to like barely touch the back of your neck for an hour. Oh, whoa. <laughs> but my, I, I need to be barefoot more, that's for sure. Not in public bathrooms, though. Oh, God. <sighs> <laughs> Welcome to the Sober Bros Podcast. This is episode 14. My brother Daniel and I are going to be talking about cold dips, fasting, cancer, and a couple of book recommendations. Daniel's been doing some reading. We're going to share some highlights from that and more in episode 14. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for being here. <laughs> so before we get going on the talking points here, I want to remind you this is a video podcast streaming on YouTube and Spotify. And we got a new page on our website where you can send in your audio questions to us. It's really easy to do. You can find the links for that in the description. And please leave us a rating on Spotify or if you're on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe. If you like what you're hearing, leave a comment wherever you're listening. Follow us on socials because we're posting short excerpts, behind the scenes stuff every day. Uh, so we are in Sedona at the recording studio and things are going pretty well with Tracy and I here at the house, although there are just a, a few grievances that I'm just not well adjusted to urban living in modern society. There's so much noise. You know, the diesel trucks and the loud cars driving by on a residential neighborhood that should be 25. People are driving way too fast, being way too loud. And Friday nights, I mean, this is like a sobriety-based podcast. And we've been sober for over two months. Thank you very much. I don't know what the exact day count is. <laughs> April 2nd to June 10th. Mm, so about two and a half months. Mm, two uh, months in a week. Typically, people in culture are, are like nine to five, Monday through Friday. And when it comes to the weekends, they like to party and let loose and make some noise. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the unfortunate things about living so close to people. It was like last night was Friday night for us. And neighbors were just playing music loud. The bar down the street was playing their music and it's all echoing in the night. And dogs are barking. And I just couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. If for the nervous system, if we're talking about like... Just always oh, just... Oh, it's always on edge. Yeah, on edge, a constant state of distress and like dissonance, you know, because mm -hmm. we're talking about wavelengths and harmony and vibrations. Yeah. It's it's abundantly clear that at some point in the future, I need to build up the resources and financial capital to just move away and live five miles away from people so I can have, be closer to nature and peace right. and quiet. And the birds too. I love bird song, but <laughs> there's this thing. Do you notice this? There's like this thing of angry birds. He's going to complain about the birds. <laughs> angry birds in the city. Like even here, just outside in the tree, like there's these little birds that are cosmopolitan and territorial and they just go chirp, 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 chirp. And they're like vying for space or whatever. But it's not like, oh, I'm building a nest and we just made it. And No, that's interesting because you don't hear the birds like that at my place. No, you don't. Because, yeah, last time I went out there, I even mentioned to Tracy, I was like, 
oh, listen to that. The birds are acting normal. Yeah. And it's beautiful. But then around here, and I notice it everywhere I go to. And when I see clips online of people filming something in an urban environment, I can hear in the audio background when they're filming those angry birds, the same ones. They're everywhere where city and people's condense. And oh, man, Tracy thinks I'm crazy, but there's a, it's a, it's an identified like syndrome. I forget what it is, but it's something about being ultra sensitive to certain things. Yeah. Like we were talking about before recording, some people have an, an allergic reaction to electro smog and electromagnetic fields in their environment. They're really sensitive to that. I'm really sensitive to sound. Yeah, things change. And, but other than that, I got onto a new tip for a morning routine. Um, I got onto a tip for a morning routine. I'm trying to build better routines for the morning, healthy habits. And I've always been a fan of cold dipping, you know, immersing the whole body in like either an ice bath or a cold creek. Um, I started this new th- I was watching a clip online and this guy, Dave Asprey, who's mm-hmm. the founder of Bulletproof Coffee. Mm. And he talks about molding coffee and how to create pure coffee. And that's what he's all about with Bulletproof. But he's got a lot of other like tips and lifestyle tricks, you know, that people can learn to integrate into their lives. And I saw this clip of him talking about face dips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's what I've been doing recently every morning, cold face dips. And I highly recommend it because we don't actually in our home right now have access to like a cold dip proper, like a whole bath. So he was saying in this clip that, you know, if you want the benefits of the cold dip, you can get them all by dipping your face in a big bowl of ice water. And he was talking about the details like the blood brain barrier and how it can, you know, stimulate all these things. And a lot of the receptors for cold feelings or whatever are in your face. Yeah. And so you don't have to put your whole body in and just your face. And so um, I did it for, we've been doing it for like four days now and it's been great every morning. And it definitely is tingly. And I notice a difference in the pores of my face. My pores feel tighter, cleaner, and not to mention it's just in the morning, you know, it's energizing, wakes you up a bit. Yeah. And and it's fun too, just to sort of test those limits to your endurance to uncomfortable situations. Another thing that I've been doing uh, recently, I, I've, you know, fasting is something I've done off and on for years. Yeah, we've been into it for a long time. Yeah, a lot of health benefits to it. Um, a lot of psychological benefits for delaying gratification and resisting urges and just pushing the the mindset, you know, mind over matter. You know, your body, your stomach might want to tell you that you should eat, but then your mind can say, do I really have to? And maybe let's not. So about a week ago, I fasted for five days, uh, which I'm way overdue for. I wanted to do little micro fasts for almost two years, Mm -hmm. and I haven't. Just every day I just eat. But it was interesting with the fast, what came on, just lots of thoughts about food and eating patterns and why do we always eat. Like throughout the day, you might want to snack. You know, my go-to snack is cheese and crackers, and but do I really need the cheese and crackers? So I committed to doing a fast indefinitely. I thought I was going to do like a week. Ended up just being five days because quite frankly, I started thinking about hamburgers and I wanted a burger. 
<laughs> and so I did after five days, which was really good. At the Hudson? No, we didn't go to the Hudson. We went to a restaurant here in Sedona called The Wild like Hotel. It's a fancy chick. Resort. Resort hotel. Chic. Chic. And they have a restaurant called Rascal, which we had never been to. So Tracy and I went there because the menu looks good. But uh, but anyway, the fast, What I one of the things I wanted to get from the fast was mm. to lose weight. Because for ever since I turned 40, like three, was it three years ago? Mm-hmm. I felt like fat. I got fat at 40. Well, that's subjective. Right. For me personally, my belly got bigger. You felt fat. Uh, yeah. And my belly was bigger when. Sure. Yeah. And, and I don't really like it. You mm-hmm. know, I, I want to be more disciplined, but quite frankly, I'm lazy. You know, I want to do stomach crunches and like the push-ups and the things to get my physique to where I wish it was. So there's a gap between where I, I wish I was with my body and where I actually am because I'm not really, I don't have the discipline to do the work that it takes. Right. So I figured a fast would help with that. And it typically does. Three years, two years ago, Last time I did a big fast was 13 days Mm. and I weighed myself and I lost like 15 pounds, Mm. which was weird because my stomach didn't really get much smaller, but I lost the weight. Clearly the scale said, and my digestion improved and it was good. So I was looking for the same benefits, but you know, honestly, five days of not eating isn't long enough to get the results that I was, the goals I was trying to achieve. But it was a fair reset, at least mentally. It got me thinking more, mm-hmm. you know, without the constant energy of our bodies going to digestion. Yeah. It can then like maybe go to healing certain things in our body and maybe up to our brain a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's commonly known at this point now that uh, the body actually has um, three brains, mm-hmm. right? Here the heart and the guts. So when you take a break from eating and you're not just like this metabolic process is constantly happening, the digestive process is constantly happening and your um, stomach and digestive system actually has a chance to focus on other things, to focus on other things. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to necessarily lose weight from your belly, but I mean, there's plenty of other places that your body is storing fat around organs, you know, Mm. different parts of your body. And, um, and actually just the toxic load. I don't know if you were doing enemas or anything during that, that fast. No, I wasn't, but that's another point I wanted to mention is actually, I haven't done it yet, but I want to look up around Sedona if anyone does colonics. Oh yeah. Really they do? Oh yeah. There's more than a few. Yeah. I used to, I'd done a handful of colonics back when I was actually in my thirties, but I haven't done them, you know, in over 15 years then. Yeah. And it's really, actually, it's a vital component to fasting um, these days. To get the circulation of the lymphatic system or yes, the toxins. Yes, and just in, yeah, when you're fasting, your body starts dumping toxins. It actually goes into a detoxification process. We're always kind of in a, in a like a process of homeostasis mm-hmm. and, and detoxification. But if we're constantly just trying to process food and deliver those nutrients and things like that. Um, your body during a fast, you can actually now we can start detoxing mm-hmm. and it's, a, it's, it can be fascinating the amount of pounds of toxic material in there that you're getting rid of. That doesn't necessarily have to do with what's just above your belt. 
Yeah. So, um, fasting is something that I, I did the five days and probably next month, I think I'll try and go for a solid week and in conjunction with some colonics. So the recovery process continues. I'm still, still feeling, you know, not back to a hundred percent, uh, from quitting drinking, you know, even after two and a half months, <clears throat> I went a few nights without sugar which is something else that's sort of related to this whole fasting thing because I'm, sugar is another addiction for me that I'm trying to get over. And, but the sugar thing got me thinking and fasting got me thinking about candida fermentation in the gut, chronic gas, bloating, yeah. um, sugar candida. If you don't know what that is, it's like a kind of a sugar overload yeast buildup, yeast buildup in the system that can lead to fermentation, bloating, and cancer, ultimately, and death, finally, potentially. In a lot of people, it happens. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling that in my gut that I could get rid of some... Well, it, Tracy thinks I have candida, and she's probably right, because, you know, I've had sort of a dandruff problem for years, and like an eczema problem a little bit, little spots here and there mm -hmm. on my body. And it's if it's on the skin, which is the largest organ on the body eliminative finally besides the inside organs and if there's problems on the skin it's pointing to problems on the inside mm -hmm. and so i've just known for a long time that i have a problem with sugar and probably candida which are markers and signs for potentially cancer yeah at other, some point other health risks besides lung cancer from smoking or whatever or goddamn anything in the environment can kill you but yeah, just continually wanting to get back on my health, get those colonics. and Yeah, and fasting is such a great reset. I mean, st there were studies done in the 1930s. I think I got this information from um, Healing with Whole Foods, which is like the really incredible information about nutrition. Um, but studies done in the 1930s, um, people fasting, and it was showing that they were curing themselves of basically every disease that they were that people had cancer and everything mm -hmm. doing like seven to 30 day water fasts with colonics. It takes a lot of discipline to do that. Like it the, does. Yeah. But once you get, it's like when Daniel Vitalis was saying this and I was agreeing with him that like during exercise, once you get past that first little bit, the first few days, cause I've done a lot of fasts and after the first three days to, to me, it's a breeze. Mm hmm. I want to talk to you about uh, some books you've been reading, but first, can I tell you kind of a crazy story from the past? Mm -hmm. It's related to fasting. It also is something extreme that I did in the past and I wouldn't do again. And I, I might've told you the story before, but I want to repeat it again for listeners. It was something I was thinking about the other day. Uh, do you remember back when I was working for the billionaire? Mm-hmm. There was a lady on the team who had a younger sister who had, oh God, what do you call that? Um, where the liver trans anemia, okay, sickle cell anemia is what sickle she had. Sickle cell anemia. And the liver can't do its thing. And they have to get the transfusions, like, depending on the severity of their cases, sometimes every day. Mm -hmm. In this case, this lady did have her go into the hospital every day for to have her liver flushed or whatever the blood mm -hmm. and it was crazy and 
what I was doing for the billionaire was I was label I was called technically a nutrition specialist because I did a lot of studying and all this stuff and I knew quite a bit. And I was in the scene. And so as a nutrition specialist, this lady approached me with a request for her younger sister who had sickle cell anemia. And she said, is there anything you can do? She's been having this condition for years. It's really weighing heavy on the family. As, and is there anything you would recommend or could do? And I, I, I really, because I liked this lady and I felt bad for them. And so I was happy to see what I could do to help. So what I suggested that, that they do is because at the time I was living in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and they were Marina living in Del Rey. I was in Del Rey right on the beach at the billionaire's property, one of his properties. And these other people were living in Canada on the eastern side of Canada in Winnipeg. What is that? Alberta, Ontario, some shit. I don't fucking know. Canada. It's Canada. (laughs) And, and so I suggested, well, you know what you should do is have fly her. Alberta. (laughs) Alberta's on the West coast of Canada. Fly her out here, have her spend a week with me, and I'm going to put her on a health protocol to cure her. Something like that is what I said. Mm -hmm. And shockingly, they agreed. They flew her out there. And they they took some precautions. They said, okay, well, you know, she has to go into the hospital every day. And I was so gung-ho, like, forward. I was like, no, she's going to be cured. I'm going to cure her in, like, three days, and she won't have to go to the hospital and all this. And it was like, because I was, again, talking about, like, the law of attraction, right. manifestation, you believe it, getting all Tony Robbins. Right. And I was for her. Not for me, because I was actually still drinking at the time. I was, like, all tragically depressed from the billionaire. He was, like, a nightmare. But I had big aspirations to cure this lady for her family. So she flew out. And she stayed in the apartment that I was staying at for a week. And as soon as she got there, I got her on a protocol of this like tea and some other tinctures and herbs. Okay. But those are secondary to my primary goal with her was to get inside her mind. Yeah. And so I started talking to her all positive, you know, like making eye contact and saying, believe in yourself and, you know, get, getting her mindset right and then getting out into nature because she was living in a big city with the buildings. You know, we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, being around all the sounds and yep. electricity and dissonance. It's all in L.A. too, but we were right on the beach. So I would take her for walks on the beach. Sounds like a date or something. Positive <laughs> affirmations. But I assure you it was platonic and goal-oriented. So we would go for walks on the beach, sunshine on the skin, barefoot on the earth, and she didn't want to get in the ocean, but she would get her feet in the ocean. So she was getting grounded. She was getting sunshine, fresh air, and somebody close to her to like, because she was not believing in the whole thing. She was depressed, but I got her mindset right. And so from day one, we got her into nature, sunshine, grounded, got the herbs in her, the positive self-talk and the sleep. And so all of that combined Day one happened, went to sleep, woke up. Next day, right from morning, sunrise on the beach, same thing, positive talk. Happy day. You can do this, you know? Yeah. And uh, she didn't go to the hospital that day. She felt a little sluggish and was 
on for on board for the program. But miracle of miracles, on day one, she did not go to the hospital. And then day two, same thing, the routine, the protocol was positivity, optimism, you can do it, and the herbs, and the spring water, because I had like gallons of spring water from Angeles Forest Mountain, high altitude spring water. And so she was drinking spring water for the first time, getting grounded in sunshine for the first right. time. Positive talk. Day three, no hospital, blood transfusion. She And she was feeling still a little off, understandably, miraculously. Day five, no hospital, no blood transfusions. By this point, people are starting to get worried. One of the managers associated with the billionaire who was on site, he was always on, on the peripheral with his vehicle to drive her to the hospital in case of an emergency. But there was no emergency. And day six, no hospital. Day seven, and this is where my memory gets a little cloudy. She flew out on day seven. Mm. I think what happened was this. Her family, because we were in constant contact every day on the phone. Yeah. Her family was just freaking out at this point. Just couldn't believe it. They could not believe it was happening. They didn't believe it because they weren't there to see it. Yeah. <laughs> and quite frankly, the on-site manager, he was worried too. Yeah. Because they were older than me and they knew about this condition and I was young and dumb and I didn't know the... A big deal. I, I knew it was a big deal, but, but I didn't the know that it, of it. And they were like, you know, they can die, but I didn't have this like grasp of like death is like dead, right. you know, like bad. <laughs> so for seven, six days, because what happened on the seventh day, they the guy took her to the hospital to have her blood transferred and then put her in the airport and she flew back home. And then when she, as soon as she got back home, she got, she got on the old program because I was in contact with them for a while after that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hospital every day. Just they went right back to the old things out of fear, I guess. But isn't that crazy? For seven days, someone like that didn't have to have what they thought they had to have because that speaks to the whole power of positivity in the mm -hmm. mindset can have a Wim Hof with the breathing. If we're talking about cold dips again, and like if you're familiar with Wim Hof, he's all about get your mindset right and you can do anything. Totally. And I saw it. It was miraculous, man, that that happened. So that's just a crazy story I wanted to share. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see or to hear about the blood work that they did when she went back to Canada. That's a good point. I never thought see about if, that. See if things had shifted. Mm. I never inquired I'm about sure they did shift to see how they shifted details like that. I don't know, but all I know is, you know, for about three weeks I was in contact with them afterwards and she just went right back to the old program. I don't, I'd be fascinated to see where they're at today if she's dead or alive or what, but I'm not in contact with them anymore because Nygaard's in prison and everyone that worked with him, they're pretty much in hiding. Yeah. Like the photographer slash videographer that I traveled with and worked with, he actually went into hiding because he called out publicly like on Nygaard and he went into hiding because Nygaard's billionaire, very powerful, right. and he could possibly have you killed. Yeah. And and this photographer, videographer documented the most dirtiest of deeds because he was filming every day. So he's in hiding. I've even tried to reach out with him through some lawyers hmm. um, who were on Nygaard's case and actually questioned me a little bit. And I said, hey... This guy, I won't mention his name, just for whatever case. I said, can you put me in contact with him? I'd love to talk to him. They were like, no, no one is. 
And so them up in Canada, even if I wanted to find out, I probably couldn't. Mm. But nevertheless, it will go down in history in my memory as one of the most craziest things I did. I was thinking about the other yeah. day, man. That And to anyone at home, like, obviously don't try that at home. Well, when you were kids, uh, you know, there was like six of us in the house. Georgia and Antonia had already moved on, you know. So there was like Julia and Bridget and all of us. And, um, you know, we got sick quite a bit and, um, mom would tell us like, yeah, it's a, like a, it's a mental thing, you know, just don't get sick. And I remember having strep throat a handful of times when I was a kid, but after that, like relatively just, I've gone through my life with very, very little illness. And I think a lot of that has to do with just in my mind from a very young age, you know, just don't get sick. Believing it, the power of belief. So you've been reading some books recently and, and, uh, you, they've made a difference in your life, made an impact. You want mm -hmm. to share some stuff about them? Mm -hmm. There's two books, two books. The first one is called the body keeps the score, which if you've been listening to the previous couple of episodes, it's been yeah, coming up quite it. a bit. Mm -hmm. So once again, I was listening to Gabor Mate's interview with Joe Rogan and he mentioned the body keeps the score. Anyway, I started reading that book and this is back, you know, just a couple of weeks into sobriety and all this emotional stuff is coming up. I had known that we grew up, you know, and had experienced traumas. It's inevitable. And I really want to just make it a, like a beyond clear that I don't blame our mom. I don't blame dad. Like I don't blame them. This is not about that. Everybody's going to experience trauma. So anyway, I'm realizing the gravity reading The Body Keeps the Score. Now I'm really, it's becoming clear to me. It was like this dawning wake up moment of like, um, just how, how profoundly uh, it affected me, these experiences growing up. Um, it was like I was emotionally sitting, like I had emotional dysentery. If you know what that is, you're just like fluids out of all pores and available spots. And I was just sitting there in like this emotional dysenteric mess. And I was like, I fucking need help with this. Anyway, the body keeps the score is basically how when we experience um, early childhood trauma or any kind of trauma, how it gets stored in the body. And the early childhood trauma, what happens is you know, uh, we start developing our emotional, like the right side of the brain way before the intellectual side. So before we even have the capability of describing a situation, we feel it, those emotional experiences, and those get stored, those get recorded, and they get stored. But we don't have a way to process it necessarily. This is where like, things go into the unconscious, that kind of thing. Right. So we experience things in early childhood and we experience them emotionally, but we don't have a way to process them or put it into language or to vocalize anything. And so there's this lack of integration. You know, I could I could go um, outside and nearly get hit by a car, but I jump out of the way. And because I, you know, I have a narrative about the situation, it gets processed very quickly and, you know, it's not as traumatic. It gets processed very quickly. But, you know, when you're like a tiny infant and you experience these things, uh, we don't have a way to describe them. So it just gets completely recorded emotionally and imprinted. 
some of the notes that I took that uh, were significant. And then I just stopped taking notes at some point because I just, I, I was just getting so blown away by it. Uh, but some of the things that I were I thought were the most important, um, he says things like, it's not enough to identify or talk about the trauma. The body needs to learn that the danger has passed and that we're safe because we couldn't do that as, as kids. We can't do that as an adult. I can jump out of the way of a moving car. Um, the failure to acknowledge and attend to basic human needs results in a stunted existence, no matter what lofty thoughts we have, ideas, and accomplishments we have. One of the most profound things, there was a study with um, dogs and mice, and basically the results of that were that scared animals returned home after a trauma. They were being subjected to traumatic experiences and noises and things like this. Oh, so the, like with uh, with mice, they had um, healthy nests with like nice little communities and stuff like toys to play with and to be social. And then some of the other mice had like filthy. They just created these like damaged homes, basically um, dysfunctional homes that um, that they lived in. And the mice, after experiencing the trauma, the ones that uh, were traumatized, they would still go back to their um, dysfunctional home. Um, even if they had the option to go to the good home because they had been raised in this home. And, um, to me, that was, uh, speaking to like the patterns that we established when we're very young and that we just continue to go back to, you know, we return to the abuser, you know, um, the Stockholm syndrome, you learn to like actually love your abuser. And because these patterns get established so early, we actually become another thing he mentioned is we become addicted to trauma. We don't feel alive necessarily unless we're under duress. You know, people who are like, we can go, oh, that person is just a, a, a drama queen, you know, or like a people that or a drama king, people that want to, they always have to have some kind of dysfunctional event happening in their life because that's just what was imprinted on the very young. Again, I can return to like the continuum concept. And then in the body keeps the score, he mentions this as well. For the first two to three years of our life, those experiences that we receive, the messages that we, the stories that we develop in our brains up until like two or three years old, that sets the tone for what we come to expect and actually seek out in life. Um, so anyway, that book uh, set me on a whole like open up the can of worms as far as like healing emotional traumas and experiences. So what's the other one? Is it called um, the myth of normal? Yeah, one's called the myth of normal by Gabor Mate. I think for anybody who wants to understand emotional or physical trauma, mental illness, addiction, and they want to understand the roots in such a holistic, comprehensive way. Uh, this book is fascinating. It's a daunting read. It's, um, oh, I think it's 370 pages, but I mean, the book is like this big, but in like a tiny nutshell, this book, the myth of normal, like we see the society as normal and uh, kind of like you can throw a frog into a pan of water and, turn the heat on and it's, you're going to kill the frog because it just adapts and slowly 
acclimates and normalizes to the temperatures until it just dies. Here we have a society where um, things just get passed off as like normal. It's normal for like the noise of a city, right? We normalize all of the um, dysfunctions and uh, psychopathic ways of thinking and operating that are so beyond inhumane, like unhumane. Um, we live in a very, I think, uh, unhumane society, uh, an environment which is just the breeding grounds of trauma and mental illness. So, I mean, it talks about how actually this corporate world that runs the world, essentially, right? It's like a, a corptocracy. The way that life is set up right now is... They're out for our dollars, they're out for our consciousness, and they don't give a fuck who's dying physically, like, you know, they're addicting us to alcohol, tobacco, sugar, which is one of the worst of them. Um, and so this book goes deeply into uh, how society is set up to traumatize. And um, I think it really helps with a compassionate perspective uh, to increase our capacity for self-compassion. And that's like really pushed in this book is to have self-compassion and then we can have compassion for um, everybody else and like what everybody else is going through. You know, like I wanted to make very clear, like it's not mom and dad's fault. I've, I mean, I have complete compassion for how they grew up and everything that they experienced. And uh, the book also goes into like how um, children are affected in utero, like from conception, like the emotional imprints that happen because it, it affects the genetic material of the egg and the sperm. Yeah, then the whole in utero experience, they're all he goes into clinical studies and like actually a third of the book is just his citations. You know, it's, it's very well documented and very well backed up in case people are like, oh, that hasn't been proven. I mean, it's been proven many, many times over. You know, they're saying things like um, when a woman is pregnant, if they're in like stressful conditions, especially constant stressful conditions like mom was, what that does to the child, what can happen to the child is it's um, like, I'll just say for myself, it sets, well, it sets a, uh, an in utero child up uh, to not be able to handle stressful situations throughout their life. And we can have higher levels of um, uh, adrenaline in the body lower amounts of cortisol. Cortisol is actually the one that goes in there and like neutralizes um, uh, the other one so that we can actually put us back into a place of homeostasis. Um, and I remember when I was living on the farm and I was so stressed out and I've, I've had ex sometimes extremely high anxiety for a good deal of my adult life and I have no idea why. You know, I don't work, you know, in stressful situations necessarily. And um and it, it did dawn on me at one point, even before I read all these books, like, I mean, I was like getting fed stress hormones in utero. Um, and then for the first several years of the first just growing up, you know, it was like a very stressful situation many times. Um, so, yeah, the book uh, documents uh, things like that, conditions that children experience from like mild stresses like that, little trauma with a little T he describes or trauma with a big T. You know, there's like people who are getting like sexually abused or tortured as children. Um, and those are like the big T's. Um, the little T's are like neglect, you know, and uh, children. This is 
we've talked about this as well, like the Spock method and what kids have to experience when they're just like, let them cry it out. You know, they're going to have to get used to it at some point. And um, there have been so many clinical studies of like what that does to a kid. Um, you, you see it in dogs, right? You, like you go to a veterinarian, like, yeah, my dog's acting up. And that's like, because the dog's not getting enough attention. So give your dog more attention, right? It's not going to start having super high anxiety if you, you know, don't leave it home all the time alone. You know, your dog's acting up. Well, spend more time with it. Veteran, this is such common sense. Why is it not common sense to do that with kids? <laughs> now it's just common sense to medicate them. And hey, Gabor Mate talks a lot about that too. Like all these kids who are acting up, you know, from this environment that is just like so environment, like physically toxic and then emotionally toxic as well. Like these kids are acting up, let's put them on a drug. I mean, they're putting kids on anti-fucking psychotics, you know, when possibly all they need is just a hell of a lot more attention. And the society, like parents have to go to work. They're, they're kids from within the first few weeks of their life. They're automatically with a nanny or they're in daycare if they can afford that, you know, and they're just kids are acting up. So put them on drugs, mm -hmm. you know, instead of addressing the issue. And so all of these traumas, um, big T or little T, just get uh, suppressed and buried. And like you were saying about the skin, a toxic environment in the body. I heard this comparison once. If um, your colon can't take care of it, you know, if your liver can't take care of it. Another way, another uh, modality of detoxification is literally through the breath, like the lungs are detoxifying. If those systems can't do it, the skin will do it. And it's like trying to push toxins through a nut milk bag, you know, squeezing that stuff out and it starts coming out of our skin. Um, and this is happening emotionally too. all these traumas. They'll find a way to be expressed and to come out because they just need to and they want to be taken care of, seen and heard. And so they'll start coming out in all manner of like dysfunctional behavior um, and illness. This, he goes into detail about how uh, uh, they started doing research on all these people with illnesses and then like getting to the bottom of like their traumatic experiences either from infancy or throughout their lives and how that sets them up genetically, like turns on and off certain genes to dispose them to uh, to be more susceptible to a wider variety of illnesses, you know, and they go and they research people who haven't experienced a lot of these traumas and they don't have the same markers for a lot of these illnesses. And so he's like, well, why aren't doctors, you know, when somebody comes in and they're like, I'm all fucked up in all these different ways. Why isn't one of the things that a doctor saying is like, okay, well tell me about like how, what stresses you out? You know, how are you feeling emotionally? You know, can we go back and like take look at some of these traumatic experiences that people um, have gone through? But yeah, again, for anybody who wants to, I think, look at the pathways of addiction and environmental uh, ways that we become the people that we are, um, this is such a fascinating book. So do you have any key takeaways uh, from the books in conjunction with like you've been going to a therapist for somatic healing, just that yeah. integration, mm -hmm. the learning, the mm -hmm. progress? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, I think I mentioned this in one of the other episodes. This was maybe nine months ago at this point or something. And I was telling um, a friend of mine that, yeah, our dad used to hit us a lot. 
you know, it happened on a very regular basis. And I think I was even laughing about it. And I used to. But then all she did was like, invite me to think about how serious that was. And so I did and I start, started to like imagine myself because, you know, dad started, in my case, I don't know about your case, started spanking me before I was even one years old, you know, and I was still in the fucking crib waking up in the middle of the night crying. You know, so um, I started picturing that little kid getting hit. And if I saw that happen in the streets, I would fuck, I would physically do something to, you know, to, to stop that because of how horrible that was. And so I started realizing how serious it was. And again, when I started reading The Body Keeps the Score, I started realizing, um, I started going back in my mind and picturing myself as an infant in a very busy household, like basically homeless for a while with a bunch of us and um, allowing myself to feel things for the first time and realizing that, man, I didn't actually think that I was coping with alcohol all those fucking years of drinking i actually didn't think i was i just thought it was habitual for the most part and i didn't realize just how much i was coping with alcohol because it was a way of being able to feel like to to handle the feelings that i that i had it was a way that just made it easier and without that in addition to actually seriously looking at um some of my um, ideas about myself and emotional traumas. Um, it just started to get really, really, really fucking real. And I allowed myself uh, for the first time in my life to actually feel those feelings far more than I ever have in my life. And some really interesting thoughts started coming up. Yeah, I started to really realize, I think I was telling you about this a few weeks ago, just how shitty I felt about myself. Like I would go into these thought patterns. Okay. Let's just give a voice to this infant because this, my infant self didn't have a voice, didn't even have a language to be able to describe it. So I just allowed myself to vocalize those feelings that are like just in me so deeply, you know? And I was like really feeling I am not good enough. I have, am a fucking piece of shit, you know, and I don't want to be around anybody. I don't, trust anybody. I actually don't like anybody. And I sure as fuck don't like myself. I'm ugly. You know, this body is just like gross to me. Um, I'm not worthy of love. I don't deserve any of that. You know, um, that's been made so obvious to me. I was abandoned. I was like left alone to cry it out. I wasn't given like all the stuff that, you know, this little infant wanted. And so obviously nobody is going to listen to me. Nobody's going to hear me. Nobody's going to come and like pick me up and just hold me. And I started going and just because I don't actually think those things. Intellectually, I don't th think those things. But emotionally, that's what I've been believing my entire life. And so now I'm just giving a voice to them. Remember how I said as an infant, this side develops before this side. So we don't even have a way to describe this, but the feelings remain. And so now I'm just actually allowing those feelings to have a voice and realizing that that's emotionally, that's how I've just felt my entire life. Mm -hmm. And, um, the process for me personally, the process of giving voice to those emotions and like reintegrating them, just that in and of itself has been really healing the grieving process, going back and like just grieving so profoundly 
for what I feel like I didn't have grieving for other members of my family that, you know, that you didn't get all that stuff that Michael didn't give the fucking Jesus Christ, not even mention Jonathan, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so grief is such um, a human experience and it's not talked about. It's not taught about. It's not encouraged. It's not exemplified. And I think that without the proper grief and feeling these feeling these feelings of grief and going through a grieving process of what we may have experienced either in infancy and then growing up, um, the feelings and the emotions, the traumas are going to stay suppressed and they're going to manifest themselves in certain coping mechanisms and survival strategies and profound feelings of insecurity and fucking shame and guilt. Uh, fuck. Yeah. Right. So I started seeing this somatic experience therapist and, um, it's kind of like it's to a certain degree, it's kind of like cranial sacral massage, right? You're like laying there and somebody gets paid a lot of money to like barely touch the back of your neck for an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I do think that like there's a lot of um, healing in that. Probably, but not for me. I'm too blocked. I, this yeah. is what I realized in this process. It's like Reiki. I'm disconnected from my body yeah. emotionally. So like the belief that it, like I don't believe it's going to work. So it's just not there. You know, I'm like, too calloused or something. And what made me realize that was um, seeing the somatic therapist. Um, so it's kind of like that, you know. I'm leaving the sessions and I feel stuff. And I'm like, well, I mean, is there anything happening? <laughs> but I do think that there is. I really do think that there is. And I can tell because my mind has shifted. My attitude has shifted. I am 95% less sarcastic and facetious and caustic than I was even just a couple months ago. Hmm. Um, so you do, do you think that has something to do with how much you were drinking? Oh, for sure. Like yeah. if you're drinking, you're more crass. Yes. Why? And I identified that as a coping mechanism. Coping, coping mechanism. Um, so if you're not drinking, you're doing the work. So then you don't have to be crass or. Yeah, I'm so much more like vulnerable. And I'm not saying that because it has societally, I think that vulnerability, especially for um, men, has negative connotations. You know, we don't want to be vulnerable is seen as like there's a fish out of water. That's very vulnerable. Like it's a flopping around and shit, <laughs> you know, vulnerable men. I think a lot of people, uh, especially men thinking about themselves might feel like a fish flopping around, you know, and like looking very weak. But um, I'm, I'm letting a lot of these emotions to the surface. And that is very, a very vulnerable process. So I'm being a hell of a lot more gentle on myself because they're like really raw and even tender spots. And do you want to talk about the volleyball? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so a couple of weeks ago we play volleyball, you know, every Thursday. And so we're playing and, and typically we're shit talking the entire time. We're just like giving each other shit and putting each other down and everything. And it's super fucking funny. Um, but I just haven't been in that space at all. Up until recently, I've like barely wanted to leave my house if I didn't have to. Uh, so yeah, there were playing volleyball and there's some shit talking and I'm not engaging in it. You know, I'm not making people stop or anything, but I certainly wasn't um, 
engaging in it. And then, you know, we had played a bunch of games and I was just like, I'm, I'm just done. You know, I'm ready to go home. I'm really wanting to read this, get back into reading this book. And then one of the guys, um, started giving me some shit like, Oh, what are you like losing too much? Cause yeah, we were, I was on like a losing team and, uh, we lost a lot, which doesn't bother me anyway. I was just super fucking sensitive and I snapped, you know, and was like yelling at him. Yeah. I think yelling at multiple people, like to shut the fuck up. And like, I didn't want to hear. And I'm, and then I, I left, you know, I grabbed my daughter and left and I felt stupid. I felt ashamed. I felt just like a total fucking piece of shit. Um, super embarrassing at the time, which I don't mind being embarrassed. I really enjoy it. I think there's a lot of learning opportunities there. Yes. All these emotions that are just like right there on the surface. And I felt, uh, you know, like a match near a haystack to a certain degree. And yeah, I've learned very much to let everybody know. And I have since then, you know, when I'm around people, like I'm not in the space to be typical caustic Daniel. Yeah, I've heard it elsewhere, too, that people say who've learned from experiences that you have to communicate your desires and needs to other people around you so they know what your goals are, intentions, and where you're at in your inner world. Yeah, it's empowering, you know, for me to let everybody else know. It, like, gives them now the the power to uh, be more authentically genuine yeah, and the somatic experience thing, um, I don't, I haven't really told you much about this, but basically what the whole point of that and from what uh, the body keeps the score, uh, he says that this is possibly the most effective therapy for the traumas we experience that we don't remember that happens extremely early on. But the feelings are there because the process in somatic therapy is like, you know, I go in and he's like, you know, what do you want to feel today? What do you want to talk about today? And so I get into a place of like how I'm feeling and then just, you know, he's asking me like where I feel that in my body and I can talk, you know, a little bit about, I have in these sessions, talk a little bit about, um, what I'm experiencing and it's such a safe container, right? So I can actually go just like unhinged and talk about how I'm feeling and, and let it completely go, you know, and then. He'll ask me to pause, you know, and like look around. It's a process called orientation. You basically look in your into your environment from the left to the right, which is a way of integrating the left and the right hemispheres of the brain, taking in the environment, finding some place to like ground into, and then feeling in the body, like where am I supported? Like what's happening in my body right now? Um, and I realized very like from the first session and then experiences to the last two as well is that when I'm getting, when I'm experiencing all of these emotions, I can feel it from like my chest up and like into my fingertips, but I feel nothing anywhere else in my body. It's like, yeah, well, where, like what's happening? I was like, I don't know, nothing, nothing's happening until I go through like this orientation process and just, you know, breathe, let it out and feel into the rest of my body. And what I've been experiencing for that is that the traumas are not just held up in here. Now I can like actually like let them flow and there's, I, I've, I, I don't know. I feel like it's a integration healing process because as the weeks go by, um, remembering the traumas, like thinking about them, feeling them has been getting easier. The, the load is getting lighter. Mm -hmm.
<laughs> well, the reason why I wanted to talk about um, traumas especially is because like uh, the Gabor Mate book is, you know, why do we drink? I'm realizing why I fucking drink. And I remember that story, you know, that I told early on in one of the earliest episodes is that when I was in India and I got drunk for the first time and I was like, this feels so fucking good. I feel so relaxed. I feel like everything is totally amazing right now. And that was a because that was I didn't get to experience that maybe as a kid. So I'm realizing that I had very legitimate at the time reasons to drink and it just lasted for so long. So now get, you know, sober looking into this. Why was I drinking? Why the fuck was I drinking, you know, so hardcore? Okay, all these feelings are coming up. Well, let's address these um, issues. So in my own personal experience, I think in order to not drink again, you know, that was kind of one of the, like, how do you stay sober? Because I, I still want to drink every fucking night. I still do. In fact, just last week, I had an experience uh, that was super fucking triggering and was driving home. And I parked in front of a gas station. I was there for probably 10, 15 minutes, you know, just like anxiously smoking a cigarette, you know, gripping the wheel. And I drove away, you know, but I was like super fucking close. So how do we stay sober? For me, the experience that I'm getting into is like getting into the pathways of addiction and what creates uh, the desire and the need to be able to handle those emotions and to, to, to feel okay. Gabor Mate says in his work with the uh, addicts um, in downtown Vancouver, heroin, other drugs. The reason why the self-admitted reason why they do it is because they feel normal. We just want to feel like, okay. And so I've always wanted to do this my whole life to get to the bottom of things, to get to the root of things. And so I'm going back to these things to find out why in the world I wanted to escape. What did I need to um, run from, hide from, cover over? And I think that that is an important part of staying sober for a lot of people, not necessarily um, you, you know, uh, but for somebody like me, who is a super emotional person, getting to the roots of these things and finding out um, what happened early on is a key component to mental health, physical health, emotional health, and not having a reason to drink anymore. Yeah, I mean, how's your sobriety going? I mean, are you like struggling at all or are you mostly just like, you know? No, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, after a certain point, yeah. I, there's just no right. It yeah, comes, from, it comes and goes in waves. Like usually, for briefly, during a sunset during summer, like yeah. it would just be so nice and easy to have a drink. But it's a fleeting thought that lasts for about a minute or two. Yeah, and it just goes away because I'm so busy with creativity and productivity that yeah, yeah. So right now it's smooth sailing for me. Uh, I mean, I go into the store, see the beer in the aisle and I just walk on by. I don't have time for that shit. That's <clears> not to say that it won't change in the future because again, what was it? Seven years ago, whatever it was. No, six, whatever. I quit for nine months uh, and then I just went right back into it one night. I never told the story of 
how I got back to drinking that one time real quick. It's because it's kind of fun. Yeah. I was in Austin, Texas, because Tracy and I had broken up at the time. And I was doing nude modeling at a college in Austin, Texas, because I was struggling for money like always. In the past, not anymore. <sighs> and new modeling was fun and uh, novel for the first like five times. It was like, oh, this is different and kind of a fun test to see if, how still can you be for an hour while these people look at your naked bodies. Speaking of vulnerability, yeah, you're just exposing yourself under these bright lights in an artist's studio at a college and like there's a dozen younger people, some older and uh, whatever age, and they're drawing you, looking at your whole body and you're standing there and you might have the it, desire to move, you itch or something and you are you get a cramp or you want to move, but you got to stay still. And they're, they pay you a hundred bucks, you know, but if you're broke, you know, that's a good hundred dollars. Yeah. But then it got old, you know, I, it got to the point where I remember the last time I was doing it, it was nighttime and I didn't want to be out there at night. And I had to ride a bike because I didn't have a car. It was dark and cold because it was winter in Austin. And I had to ride my bike all the way across Austin to this place for a measly hundred dollars because I had no goddamn fucking money. And I was standing there and like re resisting the urge to itch a scra scratch an itch on my body. And I thought it was so stupid. I was like, I just want to move. And I want better and all this stuff, you know, is going through my mind as I'm just standing there Yeah. at night. I got this stupid bike with these big tires, not street <laughs> tires, you know, and I got a pedal. So there I am halfway across town trying to not scratch an itch and just feeling frustrated. So what I did was as soon as the class was over, I knew what I was going to do. My mind was made up as I was standing there under the spotlight. And so I wrapped up, got dressed, wrapped up, left the place, got on my bike and just to a uh, block away was a little mini mart and they had some beer in there. And so what I did was I got a six pack at least probably more and a pouch of tobacco. Cause I was not smoking or right. drinking for right. nine months. And I just, I went right back to it. I got six pack. I got the tobacco and I biked to a, a little street under a tree. I think you called me from that spot. Yeah. Because that was when Tracy was doing a yoga thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, she was in Mexico doing a yoga teacher training, and I yeah. was in Austin, and I went back to it. Hmm. Yeah, so there I was, halfway across Austin at night, sitting under a tree, you know, on a curb, and just cracked a beer and lit a smoke. And it was rough getting back into it at first. Hmm. I mean, the smoke, because it's the no-filter, roll-your-own-tobacco American spirit. So it's rough if you're not used to it. So I remember taking the first drag and I was like, oh, whoa. <laughs> it was hard to take a drag. Yeah. Now it's just like easy. It's perfect. But right. man, it was rough. It was brutal on the lungs. But I was like, oh, man, I got this. Come I got to get the. I got to get through this. Yeah. So the first one wasn't that good. And the second right. one was rough, too. But but the beer was good. And anyway, after nine months, just all of a sudden, I mean, it was every day was easy. Didn't even think about it. And then something clicked one night yeah. to where I was like, oh, I'm doing this. So to my point, like it's smooth sailing right now, but that's <clears throat> not to say that the, the 
behemoth of mm-hmm. addiction can just wreck you tomorrow. Right. So I don't know. Uh, as far as um, getting sober and staying sober, there's a lot of factors that come into play. But currently, yeah, my sobriety is going well. I'm just trying to focus on the podcast, building the audience, and getting my my health back in shape in other ways. And yeah. really just focusing on today and tomorrow as best as I can. So any any advice for uh, people to get sober, stay sober? Getting sober, that's fucking hard. No, I don't really have a lot of advice, you know. It's like advice for getting into an icy cold plunge. Any advice somebody would say, well, you just got to do it. You just got to do it. So that's really the best advice. You just got to do it. And for everybody, it's different. For some people, it really is beneficial to like reach out for help, to reach out for support, you know, to like go to a meeting, um, call the people who are like, yeah, if you just give me a call. For some people, that's helpful. For me, it was never helpful. Call into this As, podcast and, right. and and ask us your questions and we'll play it on air and it'll be like we're talking on person. Right. <laughs> just before I got sober, I was talking with Frankie and he was like, you know, Danny, just give me a call. You know, you're having problems, you're having a struggle, you don't want to drink, just give me a call. And I was like, I will never, Frank, because I don't want you to tell me to not drink. Right. <laughs> I'm never going to take advantage of that. What has been helping me to stay sober, though, is um, just like creating a new narrative about myself. You know, now that I know the foundations of the alcoholism and where it came from and really addressing that. So that's been helping me to stay sober. I, mean, I know that, that would help a lot of other people to stay sober as well. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode. And if you feel like sharing short clips on YouTube, we've curated a playlist of short clips from every episode. They're anywhere between five and 10 minutes long. So if you want to share this show with somebody else who you think might benefit from it, go ahead and share it with them on YouTube. It's also uh, easily accessible on the YouTube music. Uh, it's, It's featuring podcasts as well as music there. So you can download the YouTube music app or stream it on Spotify or audio as Apple. I hope you're enjoying the audio with the new mics. And um, if anybody's interested, we just want to say this again, that um, it does make a big difference to uh, hit the like button, to rate the show on whatever platform it is, um, and to leave comments algorithmically that just helps our our reach. Is You know, I'm not doing this so that people will like me you know we're doing this in order to help people thank you for that and thanks for tuning into the show we really appreciate you and we'll catch you in the next episode bye for now